tonight, I'm going to go to the New Testament, to, uh, to James chapter 4. Uh, I know I've been pretty, pretty hard on morals uh, out, of, uh, out of Joseph the last couple messages. And um, uh, I hope that you haven't taken from that, that you can't point out any examples in the life of Joseph to use for sibling rivalry or, or jealousy or otherwise. Um, but that's exactly what they are. They're examples. They're illustrations. And the reason I'm being pretty hard on that is because my, I know that my own temptation whenever I read the story is to only reach as far as the deer can reach on his hind legs when there's a whole canopy you know, a vegetation and blessing above that. It's just easy for me to read Joseph and only see the human uh, earthly element and miss that this is about the generations of Jacob and God put it in the book of Genesis to, to link us to His redemptive plan. So what I want to try to do tonight is, is put it in the right order. I want to go to the New Testament to a passage that's, that definitively speaks about jealousy and rivalry show you there is the command, and then show you that you can use Joseph as an illustration. But it's an illustration. It's not the command. The imperative, the, the do this or don't do this, doesn't come from the narrative story of Joseph. It comes from James. But Cain and Abel and Joseph and his brothers are an example of what James is saying to us. Do you see that, see that order? Why, why that... Uh, is, is important. And we, we saw this morning in chapter 37 of Genesis that this journey begins with an introduction of the characters and, and the conflict and the, the conspiracy. And, um, you know, I've always been fascinated with this story, but the more I get into it and dig uh, in the exposition, just the, the more it, it, it comes alive. And it's, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to next week. I've already done some study on chapter 38 with Judah and and, you know, this craziness that goes on there, but I'm, I'm just excited. I'm anticipating, you know, what, you know, what's coming up and what, what, what's able to share. But if, if you look at the end of, of chapter 37 and you think of each of these chapters like a scene, you know, the words that the narrator uses, you know, and Joseph sold to Potiphar and he's in Egypt, you know, he closes the scene. Chapter 38's gonna, gonna bring up a new scene. You, you really end as kind of depressing. Uh, you know, when the curtain comes down, Joseph is a slave in Egypt. Uh, the obedient son from, from Jacob, the promised line, has been maligned and, and overtaken by the disobedient sons and then taken out of the promised land by the rejected sons of Abraham, the rejected lines. Uh, Jacob, who, who sinfully showed favorites, uh, loses his favorite for pretty much the rest of his life. I mean, he doesn't see Joseph again for years. And there's all this deception going on and, you know, plot and counterplot, the, the brothers deceiving each other, uh, the brothers deceiving Jacob, um, all agreeing to deceive their father together, um, the father, Jacob, who received the blessing from Isaac through deception. Um, you know, the, within the brothers, Reuben convinces his brothers to, to not 
shed Joseph's blood and bury him in a cistern close to Dothan, he says, text specifically says, hey, let's take him out in the wilderness and put him in a cistern. You don't have to, you don't have to shed his blood. You can just take him out in a cistern in the wilderness and he'll die there. But all along, he's got the plan of coming back and becoming the, you know, the, the hero. And then, and then his, you know, his idea is, uh, you know, is, is taken away when we're not told where he goes. But then the, the caravan comes along and they sell him into slavery. And, you know, and then Reuben figures out his, his whole plot has been, has been undone. And, and then he falls in with the rest of them and all of the brothers to deceive the, the father together. You've got this, you've got this juxtaposition of, of Jacob, the one who deceived his own father for blessing by, by a goat skin, was now deceived by his own sons with the blood of a goat on the garment of blessing. I mean, you just got all these little things that are, that are going on in the, in the story. And besides introducing that, this, the narrative with all the twists, the, Genesis has the keys to the whole story, I think, hanging right up front. I mean, when, when you enter the door of the story of Joseph, I mean, the, the keys are hanging right there. Uh, and, and I think the key for us, for, for fellow sinners, is that God wants us to see that His promise is, is, is not fulfilled based upon human performance or human worth. I mean, it is the genealogy of Jacob, but, but, but Joseph's the one that God has to use to fulfill it, and he fulfills it in some really uh, strange ways. And, and then when you add in, like we said this morning, that, that Jacob was the one chosen by God knowing what he would do and knowing that he was going to be incapable of carrying on the line unless God rescues Jacob and the sons through through Joseph, and, and then to think that he uses Joseph's plight in Egypt. I, mean, I think that's what Joseph means at the end of the story when we get there. You, you meant it for evil, but, but God was working good. He, he meant it for good. He, he, he accomplished all of this to ultimately save the line of Abraham, to save them immediately from famine, and then to save them ultimately, because in, in Egypt is where they multiply. Uh, and then, obviously, you know the rest of the story. There's a change in Pharaohs, and 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 God uh, God leads them out. Um, and I think those facts should encourage us. It encourages me because I put myself in the in the, the the situation of of Joseph or or Jacob. You know that place where uh, in the in the passage where the two dreams are given, and the brothers get really mad, and the second dream is given. And, and Jacob rebukes Joseph, but it says he, he kept it in his heart, he pondered it in his heart, he's thinking, you know. Uh, and I wonder what Jacob is, is, is thinking. And here these dreams were meant to be hope. They were meant to be a blessing. They were meant to, to, to tell Jacob and tell his sons beforehand that, that God is going to use Joseph to, to save them. Of course, they don't know what from, and the symbolism in the dream and the sheaves, um, you know, kind of gives them a clue. But but I think it really should encourage us that that in the midst of life, it reminds me that many times I have no idea what God is doing, in blessing or in difficulty. 
I have no idea what the Lord uh, is doing. But I do know He's doing what He promised to do. I don't know, I mean, whether I'm Joseph or Jacob or the brothers or, or what. I mean, look at these wicked brothers and what they did. And yet the Lord still saves them in the end. You know, He saves them by the very one that, that they, they do evil against. And, and whether it's, it's me and my sin or whether it's blessing that comes or going to the, you know, the proverbial prison or the pit or whatever it is, it just reminds me, you know, just because bad things happen doesn't mean that God is punishing me or there's sin in my life. Just because there's blessing and things are good doesn't mean that I should pat myself on the back and think I'm, you know, I'm living right for the Lord. I may not know what God is doing, but this is what I do know. Whether it's good or bad, in my interpretation, God is doing exactly what He promised to do. And He will, in the end, bring me to the point that, that, he's, that he's promised, which is to conform me to the image of Christ and bring me to, uh, to heaven. I think that's one of the keys. I think we also, another key there is that we should see that our sin makes us blind a lot of times to, to the greatest hope that we have. Um, in the midst of life, it's our sin that blinds us to, to the hope that God has clearly laid out before us. How long did you live with the Bible next to you? How many times did someone share Christ with you and you didn't think it was hopeful at all. As a matter of fact, you said, you know, I don't want anything to do with that garbage. And there was the greatest hope in all of the world being presented to you, and you were blind to it because, because of your, your sin. And Jacob and the brothers took what God intended to be an encouragement of faith in the dreams, and, and they saw it as a curse. I mean, they interpreted the dreams as our brother that we already hate is now going to rule over us. And um, they heard it as bad news rather than good news. Verse 20, uh, whenever they see Joseph afar and they say, let's kill the dreamer, the very next words that they use, the very next words that they say is, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So, you know, the very one that God's going to use to save them through their sin, they see him as an enemy and want to kill him and, and ultimately kill the one that God would use to save us. Now, as I said, Joseph is not a type of Jesus, but that's exactly what the Jews did whenever Christ came, wasn't it? He was to be their Messiah, and they said, crucify him. They did not see him as hope. They saw him as, as a curse. Um, and the gospel has that effect. How many times have you shared the good news with someone, and, and they see it as foolishness or you're just judging them by pointing out the Bible does have, have truths. Um, so tonight we're going to go to this New Testament and look at some passages that you can use for playing favorites and, and brotherly conflict. And In James chapter 4, verse 1, you know this passage well. We covered it whenever we were in the book of James. But, but this is where I would go in dealing with anger, jealousy number of other places, but here is a, this is a definitive passage that, that gives us commands uh, uh, about it, diagnoses it, and tells us what God thinks about it. 
Here James gives the definitive answer for why Cain killed Abel. Why Joseph's brothers did what they did. Where their jealousy came from. See, if you read the passage, Joseph's brothers were blaming Joseph and Jacob. It was Jacob's favoritism. That's the reason that we hate him. It's his dreams. That's the reason that we hate him. But James is going to give us a completely different answer. It had nothing to do with Joseph or, or Jacob. It, it had everything to do with, with not only their heart, but the way that they were viewing life. James chapter 4, verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your, that your passions, your desires, wage war within your members? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or amiss to consume it or spend it on your passions. You adulteresses, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Are you just, or do you suppose it is, it is no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace... Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I'm very thankful for verse 6 of that passage. (laughs) He gives more grace. Because there are times I find my heart in verses 1 through verse 5. This is the second part of something that starts back in verse 13 of chapter 3. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. James asks the question, Who is wise and has understanding among you? You want to know who a wise person is? Somebody who has biblical understanding? Someone who knows how to apply the Bible to life? Mature Christian? It's a person that you will see there by his conduct, he'll show his works through the meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, here's the contrast. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't don't boast and and be false to the truth. This wisdom, the wisdom that brings bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this wisdom, this grid system to live by, you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Okay, knowledge is data. You know things about the Lord. Wisdom is you know how to put those things in practice in life. So here James is setting up this contrast between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. God's way to to think and to live, the world's way to apply principles and think and live. And a person who is wise unto the Lord and understanding among you, amongst the church, shows it by how he behaves, by his good conduct and, and in his meekness. But the contrast, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't be boastful. And be false to the truth. You're, you're not acting like a, like a believer. You may be a believer, but you're not acting like one. This wisdom that a person's operating by doesn't come down from above. It's not from God. It's earthly. 
It's, it's unspiritual, the ESV says. It's demonic. Um, all of the wisdom of the world has one person behind it. All the religions of the world have one person behind them. And that's Satan himself. He is the Antichrist, the anti-God, the anti-truth. His way of dealing with relationships is contrary to the way God would deal with relationships. Joseph and his brothers are dealing with the relationships within the family the way the world would, would tell them to do. And you can see that by their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And that wisdom's not from above. It's not what comes down from above. But it's earthly. It's worldly. It's, it's of this earth. It's, it's not spiritual. It's demonic. And he's going to explain to us why. Why, is, why can James make that statement in verse 15? Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and, and every vile practice. You know a tree by its fruit. You know wisdom by its fruit, too. You can see the way you're operating your life, what, what, what it brings. Now he's going to flip back to the godly wisdom. But wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a big contrast there between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. So after, after he goes through that contrast between worldly wisdom and two types of wisdom that you can live by, God's and the world's, or God's and, 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 and man. One leads to righteousness and peace, and the other to disorder and every evil thing. James asks this question. What causes the quarrels and what causes the fights among you? Notice he's speaking to a group of Christians. And so, among you is amongst the church. Um, James is going to take it a step farther and probe down into a sin issue that's going on within the congregation. And he's going to show what the world's way of thinking will do to our relationships. He's going to reveal its source. And he's going to hear what God has to to say about it. And so, we would say consequences of handling relationships the world's way. And there are three descriptions that he gives here in chapter 4. When worldly wisdom is applied to relationships, you should not expect godly fruit. Uh, God's way brings peace. The world's way brings conflict. And not only that, it can destroy a family, it can destroy a church or a relationship, and it denies the very faith that, that, that you claim to, to hold. And it also brings displeasure to, to God. Um, if God would take such great pains and... and fulfill this plan from Genesis 3 and go through all of these, these hoops and machinations and, and people and, and process to, to reconcile us to Himself. And he would, he would take upon human flesh and die so that He could remove the enmity between, between Himself and, and us. And there's... The rightful enmity there. God has every right to be 
to, to be at enmity with us because of our hearts. I think it, I think it just, when you put it in that context, it deeply grieves the heart of God for believers to have conflict and, and sinful quarrels amongst them. I mean, I, I think that's what he's appealing to when he says, forgive one another because Christ forgave you. And, and if you won't forgive each other, then, then, then neither will your heavenly Father for, forgive you. He's, he's correlating that. I mean, what, what example is there between God to us of, of, of us to, to others? And, and he's showing us where all this comes from. The source of selfish quarrels. You see there, and he, he asks the question, then he answers it. What causes quarrels in verse 1 and fights among you? And here's the answer. It, is it not this, your passions that are at war within your members? He, he says there are unchecked desires that produce conflict around them. There are unchecked desires that produce wars, wars within. There are fights among you and there are wars within you. And this question, this opening question, is not just for them to ponder their theological navels. It's 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 to diagnose sin. Um, there's no verb in the Greek, so it's a it's a it's a terse statement. It's a statement demanding soul searching. And and it's a rather than looking for them to go, hmm, I wonder what it is. And you can see that because he immediately answers the question. And notice. As I said, that the conflicts are among you, and, and the two words that he uses here, what causes quarrels and what causes fights. And when you put those together, it's, it's amplified. It's, it's a very strong statement. Um, you've heard the statement, uh, I, um, I, uh, I lost the battle, but I'm going to win the war. Or, you know, you, you won the battle, but lost the war. That's, that's the two words that are used here. The first one, quarrels. Say that three times really fast with a West Virginia accent. You won't get very far. Quarrels, it comes from the English word where we get the English word polemics. You heard about being polemical. Uh, it's to argue against. This is the idea of a war, not an individual battle. What are the, what are the, what's the prolonged dispute among you? Um, the other word is conflict. It, it's the word for for battles, it speaks of a more specific fight. It's a, it's an interpersonal feud that's that's serious. Um, you'll see how serious it is in, in just a in just a moment. Um, there was a there was an illustration I used a couple I don't know, a couple Sundays ago, about a guy who who uh, who had this proverbial genie come to him and say, okay, uh, I'm going to give you a wish. Anything you want. Uh, this guy had an argument, had, a, had an argument with another, another person in town. He hated them. They, they hated each other. I mean, just bitter feud their whole life. Hatfields and McCoys. And so this, this genie comes and says, I'm going to give you whatever you want. Anything that you wish for, I will grant and it will come true. But there's one catch. Whatever you wish for and then I grant to you, your enemy will get double, whatever it is. Remember this illustration? And so the man pondered and thought there for a second and he says, 
I wish to be blind in one eye. Which meant that his enemy was blind in, in, in both. There's this attitude of the heart here. That, that even if it costs you personally, just as long as they lose, that, that's all that matters. And you've, you've seen people in, in a number of realms. Unfortunately, you've probably seen it in church. You've seen it in politics. I don't care whether I win or lose, just as long as I take you out. That's the idea that's, that's going on here in the, uh, in the heart. When you put these two words together, James is saying, he's describing a long-term feud with, with this underlying dislike. There's this, it goes along with just this, I really don't like you for a while, and then it flares up every now and then in these, in these disputes, outbursts, open hostility. It's a perfect example of Joseph's brothers, right? They lived in the same house. Verse 4 says that they hated him, and they hated him so much that they couldn't even speak to him without being hostile. But they still lived in the, in the same house. I'm sure you know, the hatred stayed in their heart as they passed, saw each other around the stew pot or whatever it was, and then every now and then it, you know, it, it, it flared up. This hostility of the brothers tainted everything. And, and while they blamed it on Joseph and their father, James says the real source is, is this unchecked desire that produced conflict around them and, and, and wars within. That's what he says in verse 2. Is it not that your, your passions wage war within you? Is it not your pleasures that wage war in your in your members, it's a rhetorical question. It's, it's, well, of course it is. Of course that's the source. That's, that's where it comes from. Notice the emphasis on your pleasures and, and within you or within your members. James says that the battles are from self-seeking, prideful desires that come from within and are really just unsanctified carnality. Now, wouldn't it be nice... I mean, really, wouldn't it be nice that the moment that you got saved, that all of that carnality went away, that no one could offend you, that the moment that someone did, you ran to that individual and said, I don't want anything between us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, so please forgive me. And that other person didn't hold anything against you from the last five times that maybe you did something to them that they didn't realize, and, and they said, you know, I don't want anything either, and... and and they, and they reconciled, um, that would be wonderful. But the Christian life, God has not ordained it that way. Sanctification is a process, and you make progress in that. And the, while that's hard, the positive about that is you get an opportunity to model the gospel every single time that happens. Every single time there's a quarrel, you get an opportunity to be Jesus. You get an opportunity to apply the gospel. You get an opportunity to be reminded of what God did for you and do the same for another person. And you get an opportunity to be a witness to the world around you because that's not the way unbelievers deal with with quarrels, right? They shoot first and ask questions later. You just ask anybody who works in the business world or anywhere else. But that's not how Christians are to act. Christians are to to apply the gospel. Apply the gospel. And he's showing that the true issue here is not the person or even what you're quarreling about. The true issue is, is what is raging inside and how that comes, comes out in, in difficulties around you. The, the word that he uses here for, for pleasures, it's, it's, uh, 
it's these desires that it's lust. It's it's unchecked desires, and it produces conflicts around us. That's the that's the quarrels. You know how many how many church fights are sinful? All of them. Now it may be over a good it may be over a good reason that the, the issue started. I mean, there are plenty of times when when lines have to be drawn and, and confrontation have to take has to take place. And James says that that there's pride that's that's there and, and this producing of war within, these desires or cravings take control in a person's bodily members, the mouth, the heart, and and the conflicting cravings throw a person into turmoil. I mean, you know you're wrong whenever you feel that way, and and yet you feel that way. So you're in this you're in this turmoil in, or you let it out and then you regret letting it out. There's this. I mean, it's 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 turmoil. The old nature rises up, longs to express itself and fulfill its desires. And James is saying its source is the self-exaltation. It's about me. You know the old acronym that you learned in Sunday school. Uh, How do you get joy, right? J-O-Y. Jesus, others, you. Who's at the bottom of the list? Me. Who's at the top of the list? Jesus. Who's in the middle? Others. And and when conflicts and quarrels arise, it really has to do with with me reversing that. Um, I come to the top. Maybe I'll put Jesus there, but then others go to go to the bottom. And the outcome is uh, the source is selfish quarrels. The outcome is this carnal conflict. Um, and he describes three outcomes here: it's unrestrained passion that leads to to murder. Um, I think that there are. There are uh, two phrases here. Uh, I'll link this together. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and and quarrel. You do not have because you you do not ask. There's cause and effect there. James says you lust and you have not, so you kill. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you quarrel. There's cause and effect. The great desire, the great lust you desire and you do not have is, is a, James is saying you crave it and then you can't fulfill it, so you destroy others to get it. It's, James is echoing what the Sermon on the Mount says where Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 24, you have heard of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in the danger will be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of judgment. And then he goes on to show that that really murder starts in the heart. That's what James is saying. The source of murder is anger. It's in the heart. That's where the law is violated. And if it's not stopped, if it's unrestrained, and you let it go on, it will get to the point where you will focus on taking your opponent out. Hopefully not physically, but that's exactly what Joseph's brothers did. That's what Cain did. The anger started in the heart and it manifested itself in, in, in murder. 
unrestrained, covetous zeal, source of verbal arguments, private battles. Beware when, when your heart um, wants something so bad and it can't obtain it. Because there's where you, you're at a vulnerable moment. So you have unrestrained passion that leads to the destruction of others. You have unfulfilled want that leads to quarrels. It says you desire and you don't have, so you, you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and, and quarrel. Um, not only does unrestrained desire lead to destruction, unfulfilled want, I want this really bad, leads to, leads to an argument. The word means to covet or envy, to want. One commentator said it's the, it's the intense feeling either for or against something. Notice it's unfulfilled. You can't obtain it. The church here is passionately wanting something to go their way, but it didn't, so they respond with, with, with fighting. If you ever want something that bad, it's best to walk away and, uh, and pray about it. And you can tell whenever you get to that point. Um, you can find yourself doing some ugly things if you don't, if you don't get it. And the motive behind that is, uh, is self-sufficiency. Look at verse 3. So he says you, you've got this, this unrestrained desire, so you, so you murder, you, it's unfulfilled wants, so you fight and quarrel, and, and, and all that comes from self-sufficiency. You don't have because you don't ask. Unbelieving motive leads to, uh, leads to, you to stiff arm God. Um, rather than seek God for, for what, what they thought was right or whatever the issue was and ask Him for wisdom that's from above, they, they took it into their own hands. I mean, the point here is you, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't ask because you don't want it. You, you want to, you're self-sufficient. You don't think you need it. What, what are they not asking for? Wisdom that God will freely give. Doesn't James chapter 1 say that if you lack wisdom to go through a trial or go through a difficulty, let him ask God who freely gives. He's not going to hold it back. So what they're not asking for here is the wisdom that's from God, the pe- that will yield peaceable fruit, that will show them how to go through this. Um, why don't they ask for it? Well, it tells you, because they don't think they need God's help. You, you, you don't ask, so you, you don't receive. When we don't ask for something from the Lord that the Lord tells us that we need and that we, we can freely get from Him, it's because, because we're self-sufficient. Or, we know that the Lord's not going to answer it. Because... We want it for selfish reasons or sinful reasons. Look at the next verse. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. And what's the wrong? To spend it on your own, on your own passions. You ask what you have not because you ask to consume it on your own pleasures. What's your own pleasures here? In the context, it's, it's to win the fight. <laughs> or to get what your passions desire. The word to consume or to spend it. 
means to totally use up. You, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to totally use it up, to completely consume it on yourself, on your own, on your own passions, which, which gives us the idea of the, of the motive. It was the word used for, Jesus used for the prodigal who squandered his, his father's inheritance to squander your rights regardless of, of who it hurts. And James says you, you don't get an answer when we're in the midst of a situation like this because we don't want God's answer. We, we want our own. And really, if we did want God's answer, we would just want it to win. Anger, passionate feelings hinder you from sensing this, just like the hatred of Joseph and his brothers hindered them from seeing the dreams were, were actually for faith and for blessing. And all this kind of behavior shows that you're acting like the world, operating like the world, and it's, it's condemned by the Lord. How does the Lord feel about this? Is this just a minor problem for believers to act like this? I can remember uh, a guy in, uh, in seminary who lived in our basement for, for a while. He was a youth pastor. And I think I've shared this with you before, but he was a youth pastor at Friendship Baptist Church. And I think that they'd been through like three splits. And uh, by the time they left, you know, by, by the time he, before he left my basement, they, they, they were at it again. He ended up leaving because they were fighting. Friendship Baptist Church. Um, oxymoron. Does the Lord just think this is just Christians, you know, acting carnal? I mean, he has some really strong words for operating your relationships by worldly wisdom. Look at what he says in verse 4. You adulterers. You're acting like someone who's married to Christ, and yet you are prostituting yourself to the world's wisdom. The third is this, this condemnation of adulterous character. It's condemned. It's spiritual adultery, it degrades Scripture, and it displeases the Lord. It's what the Lord thinks of Joseph's brothers. It's what the Lord thinks of it whenever we argue amongst ourselves. He, he moves from diagnosis to condemnation. Ask the question. Ask for soul searching. Search your hearts diagnoses the issue, and then gives the Lord's conclusion on the matter. He starts with what causes quarrels, draws the conclusion, condemns it as spiritual adultery. And believers shouldn't operate this way because it's, it's tantamount, to, tantamount to that. Strongest language possible, draws from Old Testament metaphor, and the Lord uses it whenever He's really upset with Israel. Um, it's not who you are. It's friendship with the world. It's verse the very next statement. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Where you Philadelphia. Friends in our day aren't as serious as in ancient times. That was a big deal. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God or is at enmity with God. It's taking a position contrary to, uh, to God. It's, it also disregards Scripture. Look at what he says next. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. You're, you're on the wrong side. Verse 5, here's the Scripture part. Or do you not suppose that it is no purpose that the Scripture says? I mean, God speaks clearly about this. It's deeper and deeper in seriousness. The very essence of your profession is Jesus is Lord, and and now, and He's our God, and we're a follower under His authority. How do we show that? We live under the authority of Christ in Scripture, and and acting this way disregards the lordship of Christ. It, it's tantamount spiritual adultery. It disregards what the Bible says. Stiff arms the Lord, and 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 finally, it it displeases the Lord. It it evokes divine displeasure. Um, what does the Scripture say? Talking about the Spirit yearning. The one who yearns within us, who's offended by all of what we've just said. Um the Holy Spirit which God made to dwell in us at the moment of conversion yearns for our total and undenying devotion. And when we yield to the world, become devoted to it by following its teaching and applying it in our relationships, our family or otherwise, it displeases me rebuking a divided heart. And all of that's backdrop to what we already covered in how you can you can see that coming out in your life and how you treat others. Remember? Successful 2014. How you treat others. Um, how you plan and what you do with your resources before, before we started in the Joseph passage. So, if you want to preach the Cain and Abel passage, the narrative, if you want to preach or, or share the Joseph, the, the, the subplot there of their issues... Go to the New Testament and show the commands about it and then use that as, as illustrations or delineate some way for, for others that, that that's not the main point. The main point is, is this is the Toledot of Jacob. This is the genealogy of Jacob. This is how God is telling us that, he is, that He's hanging the key at the front of the door for all sinners. That He's going to fulfill... His promises for you, even though you're like Jacob, even though you're like Jacob, uh, Joseph's brothers, even though most of the time we're not like Joseph, um, because Jesus paid it all and did it all, and we're dependent upon Him. Amen? Hallelujah to His name. Let's pray.